Ours is a culture that reveres winners and celebrates heroes. We reward ambition and high achievement. And we strive to maximize our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. The Corinthian congregation reflects just such a value. If part of today's culture, they would pass up the Apostle Paul for a mega church leader, someone they could admire for his charisma and popularity, and someone they would value for his manifest spirituality. By comparison, Paul spoke too much of self-sacrifice and service of others, and Paul spoke too much of character development. Like many American Christians, they want a leader who speaks of success, fortune, and prestige, not someone to remind them of their need for humility and redemption. To the Corinthian church, Paul had become an embarrassment. Throughout his letters to them, Paul repeatedly reminds them that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So let those who boast, boast in the Lord, implied not in themselves. And he reminds them that the power of Christ's resurrection is not separate from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that the glory of Jesus is the reverse of this world's value system. That the first become last and the last first. And that whoever wants to be great in the kingdom of God must be servant of all. God has put his valuable treasures in earthen clay pots. The opening chapter of Wonder, this year's selection for our summer read as One Church, One Book, is titled Ordinary. The main character is a 10-year-old kid who narrates his own story like this. I feel ordinary inside. But I know ordinary kids don't make other ordinary kids run away screaming in playgrounds. I know ordinary kids don't get stared at wherever they go. If I found a magic lamp and I could have one wish, I would wish that I had a normal face that no one ever noticed at all. I would wish that I could walk down the street without people seeing me and then doing that look-away thing. Here's what I think. The only reason I'm not ordinary is that no one else sees me that way. My name is August, by the way. I won't describe what I look like. Whatever you're thinking, it's probably worse. Although Augie's story is the work of fiction writer R.J. Palacio. There are stories like his that are quite too real. Stories of people mistreated, teased, bullied, and beaten down because of an abnormality or physical defect or disability. There are others who suffer an injury or physical loss or abuse of some kind. People who were once considered strong, who know what it's now like to be made weak. 
but they somehow discover a new kind of strength, either because of this weakness or in spite of it. This seems to be the message Paul is trying to get across to his congregation at Corinth. You have to learn to surrender something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. In order to trust God with your life, in order to be a follower of Jesus as master, you have to surrender. You have to let go of your desire to be in control. Kate Bowler is the professor, is a professor at Duke Divinity School and also Duke University. And she makes this observation in her book titled, Everything Happens for a Reason and other lies I've loved. She writes, control is a drug, and we're all hooked. Whether or not we believe in the false assurance that we can master the future with our words or our attitudes. I can barely admit to myself that I have almost no choice but to surrender, but neither can those around me. And the surrender she's referring to is her dependence on God in response to a diagnosis and treatment of stage four colon cancer. Sometimes the only way for us to relinquish control of our lives and allow God room in is through suffering. For Kate Bowler, her experience of suffering ran counter to the phenomenon she had researched and written about in American Christianity known as the prosperity gospel. It carries a bold claim that God will give you your heart's desires, including financial prosperity, a healthy body, a thriving family, and boundless happiness. That is a different kind of faith than what Paul speaks of and what we learn of in the gospels. In, David's Brooke, in David Brooks' book, The Road to Character, he makes a similar observation about life's struggles and the role that uh, suffering plays in our own personal growth and development. He writes, suffering like love shatters the illusion of self-mastery. Those who suffer can't tell themselves to stop feeling pain or to stop missing a loved one. For people in this striving community where everything is won by effort, exertion, and control, suffering teaches dependence. It teaches that life is unpredictable and the meritocratic, meritocratic, there you go, there's your word for the day, <clears throat> along with fame, if you have to go look up fame, look up meritocratic efforts at total control. It's nothing but an illusion, he says. Suffering, oddly, also teaches gratitude. In normal times, we treat the love we receive as a reason of self-gratification. After all, I deserve to be loved. I'm so wonderful. But in seasons of suffering, we realize how undeserved this love is. And how it should, in fact, be a cause for thanks. In proud moments, we refuse to feel indebted. But in humble moments, people know they don't deserve 
the affection and the concern that they receive. People in this circumstance also have a sense that they're swept up in something larger, a providence. It's at this point that people in the midst of difficulty begin to feel a call. They are not masters of the situation, but neither are they helpless victims. They can't determine the course of their pain, but they can participate in responding to it. Recovering from suffering, Brooks writes, is not like recovering from a disease. Many people don't come out healed, they come out different. Instead of recoiling from the sorts of loving commitments that often lead to suffering, they throw themselves more deeply into them. And then comes his most astute observation. This way, suffering becomes a fearful gift, very different from that other gift, happiness, conventionally defined. The latter, happiness, brings pleasure, but the former cultivates character. And yet we wanted another way. A man in England purchased his first Rolls Royce. After reading through the promotional materials and the owner's manual and inspecting the vehicle, he could not find an indication of the engine's horsepower. So he inquired at the dealership and learned that it was not the policy of the Rolls Royce Corporation to talk about the horsepower of their automobiles. The man was curious and not satisfied with that answer. After all, he had paid a substantial amount of money for this vehicle, and he thought he was entitled to know. So he wrote to the corporate headquarters and asked them to provide him with an answer to his request to know the engine's horsepower. In a few days, he received a telegram with a single-word answer, adequate. I think that must have been what Paul felt when he received back from God after he prayed to be delivered from his physical suffering. Imagine his prayer went something like this, Lord, you're the mighty healer. There's nothing you withhold from your servant so that I may carry out your ministry. I'm your guy. Therefore, I ask you to remove this pain and disability from my body. After all, think how much more effective I could be. Make me whole, and I will tell of your loving kindness and faithfulness to all. But instead of being healed, Paul heard this answer, sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. Asked, answered, boom, live with it. And you want to go, what? Where's persistent prayer that Jesus encouraged us to engage in? Where's that sense of faith and determination to ask God and believe? I don't think Paul's merely spiritualizing his experience to say that God can only work through weakness. But I do think he's pointing out that we don't allow God to work at all, or we crowd God out until 
we face and embrace and accept our weaknesses and realize that it's the very thing God most wants to use in us. I don't know if the search committee knew this about me, but I, when I gave a commencement address, I froze in the middle of the speech, and my brother timed me. That's what brothers are good for. He said it was 20 seconds. <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, the, the committee that chose the three of us were going, oh, I should have, you know, we should have chose someone else. Doesn't he realize that he's up there and that everyone's waiting to hear from him? What happened is I looked out and I was given this speech and I looked out and saw my friends and started thinking of all the things we had experienced together. And it was supposed to be a memorized speech. <laughs> I've never been good at memory. <laughs> and then in the second grade, I gave, got, stood up to give a speech about Lincoln and wet my pants. So... <laughs> Why they chose me to be in front of you every Sunday makes no sense. <laughs> Maybe they didn't have that information. <laughs> Far from being a detriment, what if your weakness and my weakness is the very thing God wants to use for his purposes? Not the strengths, the weaknesses. If that's true, then may God's strength be seen in our weaknesses. And may we have the courage to trust God with them. Amen.